the trauma had compounded so many times by then that unraveling that or even addressing that was in fits and starts. And it was really hard and painful. But that's where the healing began. Hey everybody, welcome back to Tales from the Journey. I'm Stephanie Zamora and I'm so excited. Today we have Kevin Barheit and Kevin has a pretty incredible story of addiction, abandonment, and abuse. And I'm just so honored to have you here with us today, Kevin. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would love to start with you sharing just a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do. That's right. Uh, my name is Kevin Barheit. I A couple of things that just happened, and it's funny you say, what do you do? So my newest title will, as of yesterday, is author. And that's the first time I've added that title there, that's for sure. And I also have a YouTube channel, so a YouTube creator, and you can find both of those online. The things I do for a living other than that is I work in, in higher education. I'm a learning technology specialist, and I work mostly with accommodative technology for folks with disabilities. Oh, gosh, like I said, you have such an incredible story. It was so it was such an honor to read it, what you shared with me. And so I'd love if you could just take us back to the beginning and, and share your story. Sure. And interrupt me anytime because it sure is one of those long stories. I, I was born in 1962. Uh, I never knew who my biological mother was or my biological roots at all. Uh, I do know now that I was probably made in New Orleans, which is kind of a neat thing to say. Uh, but I was born in New York in a place called Schenectady, New York, which is upstate near Albany, the capital. And I was placed in foster care for the first couple of months of my life. And then I was placed in a home, an adoptive home, and formally adopted by about the age of one, right around that time. I never knew my real name. Uh, I, my name is Kevin Barheit, but my name of my book is Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. And eventually I did find just about 13 years ago that my name was originally Stephen Michael. And that was a pretty incredible journey. Yeah. The, the, the beginning of my, my story starts with the adoption. And so the adoption is really a piece of my story that uh, I think a lot of people would say, and I know I said for many years, well, you were just adopted. You know, it was a loving family, quote unquote, a good family, a healthy family. No one's perfect. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm a, a grandfather three times over and a, a father four times. And I know I make mistakes every five minutes. And that's just the nature of the game. My parents weren't perfect. My adoptive family was healthy, though, in, in many ways. And I think that if that had been maybe the only thing that had, say, quote unquote, happened to me in my life, maybe everything would have turned out differently. But there are some things that I really want to focus on just briefly, which is talking about adoption is more or less looked as, uh, as I think, a, a changing of the guard, so to speak. You know, a parent, for whatever reason, needs to relinquish the child. The child is now hopefully um, taken into a loving home and cared for. And I'm not saying that's the fairy tale story, but that's the hopeful story. And one of the things that happens, of course, is that we lose track of the actual separation, the relinquishment from a, from a neurological standpoint. Um, I am a father, not a mother, but I understand that when a mother is carrying a child, there's a bond. There's a physical and neurological and emotional, probably a spiritual and mental bond to that child. And so we call that the primal wound that happens to be something that's fairly well known in the adoptee community. And that primal wound is a tearing away. It's a, it's a wound that should not happen. But when it does, it not just affects the adoptee, it affects the mother too. And I could go deep into those topics, but I just want to really equate the separation, the relinquishment to that kind of abandonment. 
even if it wasn't meant to be an abandonment, even if it wasn't meant to be an uncaring gesture, even though my adoptive family were loving and wanted to bring me in. Uh, the phrase that I think I was raised with was really uh, one that we hear often. And I was born in 1962. I was part of what's called the baby scoop era. And one of the things that I think I've heard a lot and a lot of people from that generation here is your mother loved you. So she gave you away so you could be taken care of. And okay, I'm little, I'll take everything at face value. But the next sentence that comes in, and we loved you, so we took you. So your mother loved you, so she relinquished you. And we love you too. And it's very hard to finish that sentence for a two-year-old or a four-year-old or even a 10 or even a 20 or 30 or 40-year-old. But the connection that starts to be made sometimes for not all of us, but many of us is people who love me will leave me. People who love me will relinquish me. And I have value specific to that. Now, if everything had maybe gone straightforward after I was adopted, and I think that many people have different experiences and they're all valid, mine was a little different, unfortunately. After nine years of being in a wonderful family and a healthy family, when I was nine, I was part of a group that some people might know of. It's called 4-H. Now, 4-H is like a Boy Scouts or a Girl Scouts or a Cub Scouts. And when you think of 4-H, just think of agriculture, farming, and the environment. The 4-H leader had a bunch of nine-year-old boys, myself and a whole bunch of others, over to his parents' house. His sister was usually there. His parents weren't. But his sister wasn't there sometimes. And eventually what happened was we were abused. Not all of us, because some of us actually, say, stayed in the other room or moved away from that. But some of us were slowly but surely, methodically, what we call groomed. And at nine years old, I understood that I was being treated special. I was being treated like someone who was being welcomed into an adult's room, welcomed into an adult's world. And not only was it special, but it was secret and it was ours and it was mine. And so that's when things, I think, really started to change for me. Those were painful times. But I think those painful times were not something that I really recognized at that point, because grooming has a not only a physical effect on you to, to keep you physically present for that and not feel like something's wrong. It also has a psychological and emotional and then I would say a spiritual sense of who I am and what I'm here for and what the practice will be of me as a human being, being with other human beings. And specifically at that age of what a young boy, what my practical purpose is to be with adults. So you really combine those two now. You look at the real separation of the, uh, the primal wound, and that's one relationship that I have to the world. And now the second one is, and I, I, I know this is a crude way to say it, is, is uh, now I'm a piece of meat. Now I'm an object. And that objectification was, uh, was, was shepherded. It wasn't something that was just dumped on me. I wasn't raped in an instant and turned into a rape victim. I was methodically turned into a, uh, a, eventually a survivor, but at that point, a victim. That's a lot. How, how did you start to see it affecting your life? The, I think that a lot of people um, would look at that and say, well, that's awful. And, and it is awful. But again, you know, maybe I would have been okay. Maybe if it had just been the adoption, the abandonment, and maybe just the abuse. And I say that knowing that many people have different degrees of things that happen to them in their life. Maybe it's only one thing that happened. Maybe it's 20 things a day and they're tragic. I try not to compete and compare with what others have experienced. They're all valid, all of our experiences. If you're listening and watching this now, 
whatever you've gone through or maybe someone you know have gone through, it's valid. There, there are struggles in life that some of us can't even understand until we're, we're much older. And at nine, I couldn't understand any of it. All I understood was that this was a new world order for me and I was going to make the best of it. Unfortunately, I had a couple of years go by and the abuse did uh, stop because we stopped 4-H and it's really an unknown as to what happened there because my parents never knew it happened. And I don't know if any of us friends ever talked about it. Maybe someone might have said something to somebody and then the group disbanded, but back then especially, but I will say even now the secrets are kept and that's how the abuse continues. Well, what happened over the next two years was I started to manifest some of the trauma, and these are what we call compounding traumas in my life. I started to manifest them. I manifested them in stealing. I manifested them in, in odd behavior at home. I was a loving boy who had loving parents, and yet I'm, I'm screaming at them and breaking things and throwing things and punching holes in the wall at a very young age. Things didn't make sense to anyone. But again, maybe if that had been all my parents had to grapple with, maybe they could have gathered the resources within themselves and maybe around themselves. But again, this was the 1960s and 70s now. It's a little different now. We have a little bit more of an understanding. But also, when I was 11, my dad had a heart condition that no one knew about. And it had been manifesting for years. He'd become weaker and no one knew why. So his health wasn't good while things were unraveling for me. But it was one of these kind of almost a visceral thing that you didn't know what was happening and how to touch it until he had a heart attack. And when he had a heart attack, our lives really snapped in two. And it was unfortunate, no one's fault, that at the time when I was probably in need of most, what's going on with Kevin, attention, all the attention had to go to dad. And it's rightly so. Even my attention went to him. But while my attention went to him, I was screaming inside. And then, of course, I was screaming at him because he couldn't help me. My mother had to take care of my father. I had to take care of my father. And I wasn't abandoned in that way. I wasn't, uh, wasn't homeless, I wasn't hungry, I was clothed and I was sheltered, but I had all these things that I was grappling with and I had no one to really even begin to understand or help. So that's what my world turned into. That's how it started to manifest at around 11 years old. That's, that's also when I had my first drink. I was 11 and a good friend, a new friend, he had moved into town uh, offered on a Friday night to take me to the railroad tracks. And he brought two six packs of beer. And at 11, I sat on those train tracks and drank myself silly. The next morning, I don't remember much of the night before, just some gibberish, of course, and I was drunk. But the next morning, I remember waking up distinctly. And to this day, I remember it. I said, now I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It had caused something in me to, I think, feel normal for a moment. There's, there's a great book by uh, Judith Grizel, and you may know it. It's called Never Enough, and it's about addiction. I've got almost 35 years sober now, and she's got 35 years. But I think she's a, a neuropsychologist or a neurologist, and she's done some really deep dive studies on addiction. And that's exactly what was happening to me. I, I've, I've written all over the copy of book I have and put yellow stickies everywhere because it's so helpful to know that it wasn't something I... Uh, you know, I could, I should feel ashamed of, but the shame was deep. The alcohol changed that. And then quickly the drugs changed that. I started stealing drugs from my father. Uh, he had all these pills, blues, yellows, valiums, all sitting around on his dresser wide open. And I just started taking them like candy. I OD'd when I was 12 years old on the drugs. And that was the beginning of the journey. 
That's incredible. At such a young age, how much you had already been through. And I know there are lots of people in the world who have different traumas and different experiences at such young at such a young age. But you're so right that when we're all alone in it, it doesn't there's there's no real way to make sense of it. And and I would I'd actually love to hear if there was any point or when you were actually able to start talking about some of these experiences from when you were younger. Yeah, the, the experiences got much worse for quite a while. And by the time I was uh, thoroughly enmeshed in the addiction and the lifestyle, I, 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 I took to prostitution and I was on the streets and many things you could fill in the blanks of how I got there. And it was pretty harsh. When I was really able to start to look at some of these pieces and I, and I just gave you an order of events, didn't I? Born and relinquished, right? Nine and abused, 11 and become addicted, right? That's the beginning of that story. The first thing I dealt with was the addiction because that was the most obvious manifestation of my life. I had high school dropout, I dropped out after 10th grade, couldn't spell my last name. I, my brain wasn't working very well. I literally, you and I joked a little bit at the beginning of pronouncing my name Barheit, and it's a Dutch German spelling, but it shouldn't be hard for the guy who was born. <laughs> and I really struggled with remembering things uh, like how to spell my name. I couldn't write it down. I had to take my wallet out sometimes to remember to make sure I spelled it right. But that's how a lot of us get. And it's called a bottom. And everyone has a different level of their bottom. Some people are college graduates with six-figure incomes and two cars in the garage. I had nothing. I was really destitute. Um, but when I finally did address the addiction, I did it through recovery, through 12-step recovery. And it didn't become clear to me, though, all of the lifestyle behaviors, how they manifested. I, I couldn't understand myself. I understand the drinking and the drugging, and I understood you know, recovery. I started to piece that together. I even went back to college, a high school dropout, took a college course, and I started to work on the physical changes. I think I, I got my teeth fixed. I had um, 15 cavities. I had four teeth pulled and uh, 11 of them were drilled and filled. I got braces and I tried to take care of myself that way. I got a, I got a haircut. I brushed my teeth. I washed myself, my, myself, my body, my, my face. And then I started to take care of myself, I think, intellectually. And that was really helpful, just going to school, scared out of my wits. I took a non-credit course because I didn't think I could take an English course or a math course. I took a writing skills course, the same kind of course you take for someone that has English as a second language. And I just felt like I had to take something just to tip my toes in. And it was wonderful. It was a great process. And I think higher education is wonderful and it's a great place to grow and change. But this understanding of how I felt, how my body felt, I couldn't take my clothes off and look in the mirror. When I washed, I had to get out of the shower and get out of the bathroom before I saw myself. Um, having a relationship with someone seemed a natural thing to do. As I was cleaning up, I felt healthy. I felt like, oh, I want a girlfriend. I want somebody to be with. I want to have a relationship. But sadly, even if I was in a monogamous relationship, if I was driving down the road with somebody in the car and they wanted to have sex with me, I would. I didn't seem to have a, a governor there. I didn't have an understanding. And then I would be devastated. And then it, it, I wouldn't even be devastated after. I'd be devastated even during. I'd be even devastated at the beginning. And I, devastation, what I mean by that is I was, I was nearly suicidal. And I was scared out of my wits because I said, how can I feel like this and not drink? How can I feel like this? I'm going to drink. I'm going to get high again. 
I didn't understand that. And I was in therapy one day, it was two years sober. And my therapist said, what's the problem? And I said, well, I'm behaving like this. And the, the behaviors were very stark in contrast to the person that was in front of her. And eventually she asked me if I'd been abused. And I said, no, never. And she said, are you sure? Because all of the behaviors, these manifestations, and I said, no. And she worked with me for a couple of weeks and kept asking me that. And I started to think about it and dig at it, but couldn't remember. And one, one day I left the therapy and that night I was going to a 12-step meeting. And as I drove down the road, I passed by the house and I said, oh, that's the house where that happened. And it was like a, a light went on. And I didn't know what that was, but I knew something happened. I thought about it. And the next week I came to her and I said, Val, can I ask you something? She said, yeah. And I said, when I was about nine, this happened with this 4-H leader and it, you know, it was this. I said, what was that? And I'm in my 20s now and I'm literally unaware. And she said, Kevin, you were molested. And I said, oh. I said, Val, when I was 15 and I was down there and I was doing these drugs and these guys brought me in and they drugged me and then both of them and then this happened. I said, what was that? She said, Kevin, you were gang raped. And the language that I never had began to appear, right? I had words and I had syllables and I had consonants and I could put these vowels together and start to identify that these things had happened, but they weren't me. I was a rape victim. I wasn't a, a rape. I was a child abuse victim. I wasn't child abuse. I was molested. I was not, right? You get that? That's when it all changed. The trauma had compounded so many times by then that unraveling that or even addressing that was in fits and starts. And it was really hard and painful. But that's where the healing began with Val and then with my sponsor and the program. And then, you know, through a lot of little things like literally standing in a room and, and looking at my skin and touching it and, you know, crying and saying, this is, this is your body, not, not, you don't have to give it to anybody. This is your face standing in front of a mirror naked and saying, this is beautiful. You are beautiful, but you are yours. And it took years. It took a lot of work. Yeah. Oh, your story gives me goosebumps. I mean, my experiences have been different, but there was definitely a moment of, oh, something did happen. And it's, it's fascinating to me how the brain works with trauma and just tucks things away so that we can keep functioning, even though it's affecting us and manifesting in other ways. But I would actually love to go back to your rock bottom moment. And what was that moment or string of moments? And what was the conversation you had with yourself that prompted you to start really doing this work? Sure. It's, it's probably a, a very typical story uh, for a bottom and then an odd start to recovery. So I'll, I'll get to both of those real quick. The latter years, by the time I was 15, I just mentioned there was a gang rape. That really led me into, I think, the full understanding of that I was an object. And the only cause and effect would be whatever you had to do to get the drugs was fine because you would do that. Um, I had my oldest child when I was 15, my second when I was 16. I was married very young, divorced very young. So all those years just went in a, in a, in a blitz before I was even 20 years old. In the Navy, thrown out of the Navy, you name it. Everything was really on fire. The world was on fire, but Kevin got drunk. Kevin got high. That was my only objective. And then by the last couple of years, the last three years, it got pretty destitute. It was very destitute. I was living on the streets or even if I had an apartment, the only objective I had was to have the drugs, deal drugs, 
and prostitute myself. I became a male prostitute, mostly just because that's what I thought I should do. And I never even would use that word. I wouldn't say that's what I was doing at two in the morning, walking down the street, waiting for a car to pull over. I never equated that with a decision. Uh, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't a, uh, you know, an ambition, so to speak. I wasn't, you know, I didn't go from nine to that. Uh, but by the time I got there, there was no turning back. And I was just speaking to someone earlier today about how there's a line that you cross and you don't know when it is, when it becomes, I'm doing these things to get the drugs and survive basically all the feelings to I'm just suicidal now. And it's suicide in increments. It's every day, just dose yourself as much as you can, put yourself in as many harmful situations because you don't have any worth. You don't have any value. And so there was a there was a line that got crossed and it was in those last couple of years. By the time though that I got to the end and there was jails, there was arrests, there was incarceration, there were things like that. And it was really all the things you, you, you know that these are the stories that we hear often. But the way that I actually started the change was odd as, as all get out. You see a lot of people, they hit their bottom and they say, I have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I must stop. That was the last thing on my mind. The problem I had was simply that I needed drugs and alcohol and I didn't have enough money for them. So even though I was working, even though I would borrow the money and get money from my girlfriend, even though I was still stealing money constantly, I still never had enough. Even though I was dealing drugs, I, I got what to one of those, those situations where you're dealing and then you're your best customer. And the reason I stopped was I decided on New Year's Eve, January of 1986, I said, uh, January 1, I'm going to stop using drugs and alcohol for one year. So I can buy enough drugs, save enough money, buy enough drugs so I can deal drugs and never have to buy them again. That was my entrepreneurial idea. Now, I'm a high school dropout who couldn't spell his last name, so I'm not really much of an entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, I don't know there's a word called entrepreneur. I certainly wouldn't have known how to spell it. I was very sick, but that was my ambition if there was one. And that was the thing. I stopped using at midnight. Actually, I stopped using at midnight, said to my girlfriend, I'm not going to drink and drug for one year. And she said, hey, oh, wait. And she, she had brought up this beautiful flask of whiskey from Italy that year. And she, she went to the other room. She said, this was a gift I was going to give you. I forgot. And I said, great. And it had these, it was leather clad and it had four shot glasses. I took a shot glass. She poured me two of them right after I had made this resolution. I took two shots. And those were the last two I've ever taken since 1986. Now, what happened over the next four to five days were, was really awful because the detoxing from cocaine and alcohol and other drugs was, was torturous. I didn't know that's what was happening. I thought that I was just, I had a fever. I was sick. I was throwing up. I had diarrhea. Sorry to get descriptive, but it was awful and it was brutal. But I didn't know that. I thought there was just something wrong with me physically. But the worst part was after about four or five days, and I was still really kind of laying in that. And then uh, my girlfriend cleaned me up, and I was I was pretty sick, and I was about I think 125 pounds at that point. So I was really I'm five foot eight and a half. So um, you know I wasn't much, uh, but that's not what really got me. Um, all of a sudden, without the drugs and alcohol, the the lights came on, the window opened a little bit, and I saw the prostitution. I saw the degradation, and I saw what, what I had become very clearly. And without without the, you know, the scrim of the addiction, I just wanted to die. 
my real answer to a lot of people's question when they say, how did you, you know, how did you hit bottom? And I said, well, in that moment, I just thought that I didn't, I should never have existed. I have a way of saying it now that just recently in the last year or so, I've really understood the depth of it, which was I, I not only felt like I should die or that I shouldn't exist, but I, I felt like I should be annihilated. And I mean that like a nuclear blast that just leaves nothing in its wake. Like I just should never have existed at all and I should be destroyed. And that was awful, but that was my bottom. And I call that a spiritual awakening too, because it allowed me to really say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That's the answer. Yeah, that's incredible. One of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast and in my work, journey mapping, is this idea of reorienting to yourself in the aftermath of these experiences. And it sounds like for you, it was almost a getting to know yourself really for the first time. Yeah. And the addiction was the first thing, like I said, to deal with. And the, the, the getting to know myself was like looking at that, maybe that 11 year old, right? Because they do say a lot and it's an understandable, uh, conventional way of looking at it that you get stunted by the time you get into the addiction. So you don't grow emotionally, but you also don't even know yourself. And it's a good way to put it, which is a journey map, which is to say, wow, there were, there's where I was. Gosh, I can't even barely see what happened. I mean, there's a lot of brownouts and blackouts, but even emotionally and, and psychologically, it's it's hard to look at it. It's hard to uncover it. It's very painful. So slowly looking at what had happened was really important. And then recognizing, and I hate to use the phrase peeling the onion. I never really liked that phrase, but I, I do like the idea of the mystery I was discovering. You know, I'm not a puzzle that needs to be put back together. I'm a mystery that needs to be explored. And I was the first one that needed to explore that. I was the first one. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't see that back then. But one of the things I think I did know was that if there was any way that I was going to unravel this mystery, going, I didn't have that word for it. I couldn't do it alone. I, I was incapable. And so I, you know, I entered into the 12 step journey. I got a sponsor. I worked with therapists and I worked on a spiritual path that was very difficult and torturous at times. But all that became more of that map, right? That that kind of understanding of who I am, where I've been, and where I want to go. One of the most important promises they have in um, in one of the twelve step programs I, I have is, which is, we no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we we can see how our experiences can benefit others. And so holding on to these things for years in the sickness was torturous examining them and finding the pieces of that puzzle and going, okay, okay, I wish I could throw this away, but it's never not going to be something that happened. Okay, let's look at that as a part of the puzzle, but it's not all of who I am. And then having the glory, I say glory, I say the wonderment of being able to do what I'm doing now and say, yeah, that was really, really painful. This is the healing process. And it's really still a part of who I am because I hope that I can share that. And the other piece is really important that, you know, I, I love a phrase that I use, you know, you can only keep what you have by giving it away. So all the work on this journey, on this map, on this destination that I'm looking for, the destination's right now. It's right here. It's not tomorrow even. Um, I, hope, I hope tomorrow. I hope tomorrow we can, we can, you know, continue. But right now, I just want to be very cognizant of where I've been and where I am and how I got here. Yeah. Tell us a little more about that spiritual journey. Sure. I try to take that with my friend, Diane, Diane Cameron, she's a wonderful author. And, uh, you know, we talked recently about her spiritual ilk and mine. And I asked her about it because she's so well-spoken when it comes to these. And she used the phrase, 
a light touch. So in my understanding of my spirituality, I think it's important for me to not be coy about it or, or misleading, but also say that my spiritual journey is my spiritual journey. And my spiritual presence today is what you see. You are, not you personally, but just in general, anyone that's looking at me, the important thing is, is there a spiritual relationship you're having with me? Is there a spiritual essence of what we're doing right now? And I think there is. Nice conduit. This wonderful give and take that I feel is more than just verbal or physical or 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 a bunch of uh, you know uh, or virtual things going on here. There's a spiritual aspect to it, but that's my understanding. It doesn't have to be anyone else's. So that light touch, I think, is really important. But in the first, I think, five years of my recovery, I thought I had it down. I said, "Oh yeah, I believe in God. I'm all set. You know, that's good. I can understand what a higher power is. I'm I'm good to go." And that would last about maybe sixty days, ninety days, and I'd feel like. Where I don't know who you are. I don't know who God is. And I don't feel the presence. I don't feel the direction. I don't feel that. But I kept trying. I was very diligent. And I had a wonderful sponsor and uh, Richard. Hi, Richard. Uh, sorry, I love call outs. It's just a lot of fun. We can all smile for a minute. And I, I remember sitting with Richard at about five years clean and sober, doing really well in life and saying to him, you know, I, I'm not getting this spiritual thing. I'm not getting this connection. I said, I don't even know if I believe there is God anymore. And if I, if there is, I, I'm not getting it. So maybe I don't want it. And he told me these words. He said, Kevin, you have a higher power that it's okay if you don't believe you have a higher power. So he let me off the hook and kept me on the hook at the same time. And I spent that whole year. It was one of the most important years of my life. I just said, great. So I'll just, I'll just make that choice. Be a, be an agnostic for the sake of saying, I'm tired of trying. And it was a pretty good year, actually. I mean, nothing went wrong. I wasn't, no lightning bolts. I felt great. <laughs> I will say the colors were a little different. I'm not saying they were gray, but maybe a little different. But at the end of that year, I had a real, almost a sit down with myself, right? Kind of a little bit of a, all right, Kevin, this is, you know, kind of getting a little bit odd because you, you know, I just, I do admit, I, I knew that there was a God. I believed I had some strong sense, but I didn't know who God was. And I came up with one thing. This is real simple, and maybe I'm just a simple guy, but I had a prayer, and it was only mine. Nobody gave it to me. I said, God, I know that you are, but I don't know who you are. I can't find you. Please lead me to you. Now, I can't believe that I still remember this. We're talking, I don't know, 1990s. And, you know, uh, but I prayed that prayer every day, every day. And that was the only prayer I prayed. And then I'd go to bed, and I'd get up the next morning, and I'd wait for God to lead me, and it wouldn't happen. And then I'd pray that prayer again. That was the hardest year. Because when you're open to it and you're asking and you're not, you're not actively seeking, your, I was realizing that I, I was incapable of spelling my last name when I came in these rooms. You think I can find God? I, you know, it was this kind of sensibility that I had to really be humble. And that was fine, but it was awful. And I will say that over time, and again, I think the details are less important than the actual events. People appeared in my life, happenstancely, and I would say, you know, hey, you're a good person. I'm a good person. Let's get to know each other. And that person would have a spiritual essence to them, a spiritual life, a spiritual practice. And I would be attracted to that. And I started to realize the people that were in place in my life slowly were leading me. And that was what I started to listen to. And I didn't run towards them. I actually sat there with my arms folded. <laughs> and 
eventually, you know, there was someone that was really close to me. He was an actor. I was an actor at the time. And his name is Paul. Hi, Paul. Paul DeRose. And Paul had a spiritual life that was second to none. And I was attracted to that. He also was roommates with a young lady named Jennifer. I'm married to Jennifer today. So there's a wonderment about how the, we call it serendipity, coincidences, just this movement of trust, like you and I right now don't know why we're here, but we trust. And we have this essence of like, let's, let's, let's see where it goes. Let's really be present. Well, that's, I was just present. And I will say that it was never easy. And even today, I'm not sure most days exactly what it means, but I'm, I've got the practice of being open. I've got the practice of being humble. I've got the morning practice of sitting with my, my, my oatmeal with blueberries and flaxseed and chia seeds, right? And my freshly ground pour over decaf coffee. I've got this routine. I swear to you, it's almost embarrassing. I am habitual. But when I'm eating the oatmeal, I'm reading a couple of, say, you know, spiritually uh, written passages. When I'm drinking my coffee, I'm saying some memorized prayers and having a conversation with my higher power. And when I'm done with all that coffee and oatmeal, I have an app on my phone, <laughs> Insight Timer, and I press 15 minutes and I sit down and I close my eyes and I meditate. Now, we have in, in the 12-step program a way of saying, you know, when we don't know what to do, we just do the next sober thing. And that's a really good way to put it because if I set myself in order with the oatmeal and the coffee and the prayers and the meditation, that's before I even communicate with anyone. Now I'm starting from that point, and this has taken years to get to this place, but now if I'm going to tweet, my first tweet is going to be with gratitude, right? If I'm going to get on Facebook and I read something that's inflaming me, I'm in a different place to start. And that's all I'm looking for. But I think that's really, again, I'm trying to be, uh, I will answer any questions, but I'm trying to openly say I have a spiritual belief system. I have a spiritual foundation to my life. And it's mine. And I think it's more important that we all are on that journey. And I don't care which one you're on. I want to be with you. Right. Definitely. Oh, I'm loving this so much. And I want to come back to your journey. So you hit rock bottom. You started working on yourself. You started going to therapy and realizing and putting words to everything that had happened and building that relationship with yourself and your body. Tell us what happened next. Well, good and bad, ups and downs. The process of healing from the abuse was really substantial. I mean, the pain was enormous. Um, I can tell you again, the real key for me was not doing it alone. I had people that I could cry seemingly for days on their shoulder, seemingly for days. And that really benefited me greatly. Again, much of that in the early days was without a real connection with a spiritual entity or a higher power and understanding. But I, I just had that desperation that I got to do something here. But I'll tell you, the journey just started to really unfold in ways that were beyond what I could ever have hoped. All I hoped was that I wouldn't be unfaithful to someone. All I hoped was that I wouldn't give my body to someone indiscriminately. All I hoped was that I wouldn't, you know, it almost makes me cry to remember, right? All I hoped was that I wouldn't come home at night and feel like I was a piece of meat and that I should just kill myself. And I hate to be so descriptive, but suicide is a word that I use quite openly because I think the more we talk about it, the more helpful it is, I think. And I, 
I really tell you that those were my hopes. Those were the minuscule things I wanted. And they seemed so big, even if I could just get a little relief, everything changed. Miraculously, seemingly, all of a sudden, I was not only loyal, but I was seen as dependable, relatable. People really warmed up to me. And I started to feel something that I'd never felt, pride. And it wasn't a pride that was false. It was something I couldn't have identified even at that moment, but it was what I would say would be more spiritual pride, a healthy pride, a, a real uplifting pride in not what I was doing, but who I was. Every little thing started to add up. And we talk about compounding trauma. Well, there's compounding spiritual growth. It really isn't that I incrementally grow like a snail walking along. There are days when I regress. There are days when I feel like I'm a snail falling off the, the, you know, the face of the earth. But for the most part, I'm not a snail. I am a spiritually fit human being that is continuing to make progressive moves forward. And I love the word progressive because I, I believe that I'm in a place in my life where I realized I don't want to maintain what I have. I want to continue to progress. And I use that word pretty substantially now in my conversations with other people I sponsor and the program or people I talk to or podcasts like this, because there are times when spiritually I quantum leap. I go light years, light years. I'm like warp speed, but this whole process of publishing a book, of writing a book, of doing all this, it's gargantuan and it's, it's almost insane. I, I almost gave up a million times. And even at the end, I said, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I, the thing that really seemed to hold me in place was remembering why I started doing it. And it wasn't for anything more than just the spiritual essence of wanting to help other people. So that's the growth that I've seen. That's the growth that I've enjoyed. And boy, oh boy, uh, if I were to tell you that it hasn't gotten hard at times, I'd be lying. Again, I work the 12 steps. I do feel like there are things that I do in my life, especially in the early days. I just kind of discussed them in a broad way. But there were things that I was doing that were working. I was a high school dropout. I had a college degree. I couldn't keep a job. I'm in a corner office. I, I was making $16,000 a year. Now I'm making six figures. My wife and children, my wife left me and took the children. I've got another wife and I've got two children. I hadn't been to church in years. Now I'm a leader in, in the community, you know, things like this. And here's the problem. And I will tell you, it was the hardest part. I had about 12 years clean and sober and I got real busy the corner office, family, all these things. So I slowed down on some of the things that I was doing. I just took a pause. It was so insidious over a period of four years. And by the time I had about 16 years sober, it wasn't sober. It was dry. It's called a dry drop. And I didn't know it. I was lost, confused. And I remember sitting in that apartment in Park Slope, Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, my beautiful wife and two kids sleeping in the other room. It's three in the morning. I'm in the kitchen looking out this beautiful, on this beautiful street. And I've got a straight razor in my hand. And I'm trying to say, Kevin, just do it. Just go. And I hadn't had a drop to drink. Now, I got fired from that corner office job on July 2nd of 2001. It was devastating. Our whole family was devastated. I was devastated. But I was lucky because I, that was the best thing that happened. I called my sponsor. Who I hadn't talked to in over a year. He said something really magical. And in the 12 step world, this will make sense to everyone. You got to write this down because you've never heard it before. He said, Kevin, maybe tomorrow you want to go to a meeting. <laughs> and I said, Oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing, 
But my sponsor has taught me a lot of things. One of the things I love is, is, you know, if I do not become humble, I will be humiliated. So I became humble. I went to a meeting. And then I spent that summer, 2001, in New York City, going to the uh, botanical gardens in Brooklyn, beautiful place. And I, I didn't work. I didn't worry about things. I just soaked it in and thought, what the heck had happened? But things got better. And so over the summer, I had this real chance to say, wait a minute, things were bad, so I got sober. Then things got better, and that was great. Then things got worse, and now I'm here and things are better. What was I doing and then not doing and doing? And I really evaluated it. And again, for me, it's just keeping it simple. I have five pillars in my life, five pillars of sobriety. And what I do on a daily basis is I go to meetings on a regular basis. It's not negotiable. Uh, number two is I have a sponsor and I, I keep in touch with him. I work with him. That's not negotiable. The third one is that I work the 12 steps, not once, but with him. And in my life, I work it with a sponsor. And the fourth one's really important because we're doing it right now. I do service. I do service. And the fifth one is I have a, a relationship with a power greater than myself, a higher power. Those five things are not negotiable. They're the pillars that hold up the foundation of everything I do. The reason I have five, and I don't care if you have two or 20 or none, whatever you need, understanding that there's not one thing I can do that's going to make everything fine. But if I do these five, I won't do any of them perfectly on any given day. But if one of them isn't so strong, I still have four more. And what had happened when I was in that dry drunk was spirituality went slowly. The service went away. The time with my 12-step sponsor time with my sponsor at all. And then eventually I wasn't going to meetings. It was insidious and slow. That was the hardest. What's been really remarkable is because I did come back and got, you know, back into the program. In that time frame, I was living in New York City in September of 2001. And in the middle of everything that was happening in me, 9-11 happened and the towers fell and I was living there. And I I can't say what would have happened if I had not had the stability in my life. I might have drank. I might have not. I don't know. But I handled it very differently. It was very traumatic. But I lost my job. I couldn't find a good job. And eventually, after a couple of years, I found a new job. And that job, I would not have ever seen it. It was in higher education. I worked there two years. Now, again, I'm on a journey now of non-negotiables. I'm doing things that I want to keep myself moving forward. My life is flourishing again. And as I'm leaving that job to move upstate to a new job, the woman that I work for says to me, Kevin, I want to go out to lunch with you. I have something to tell you. And she takes me out to lunch and she tells me, I thought she was going to say she was an alcoholic, something like that. She was a birth mother who had given up her twins. She knew that I was adopted and she wanted to tell me if I was ever interested in searching she would be willing to help me. That changed everything. Because I was adopted, I was relinquished and abandoned and adopted, but then I was abused and then I was addicted. I dealt with the addictions first. I dealt with the abuse second. And it was many years before I looked at this adoption piece and it has changed everything. My The value of who I am is clear now. I'm not unloved, I'm not unwanted. And here's the big thing, I can never be abandoned again never be left. You can leave me. You can say, I don't want to be your friend, but you can't leave me on the side of the road to starve and die. I am an adult now and I can care for myself and I have resources and people to help me. It's been really important to, that's a big part of my journey. Wow. I just, I'm so blown away by your story and 
your openness and your willing your willingness to share. Like I have so many goosebumps while you're talking. Tell us, tell us about the adoption piece, looking for your mom and how that led to writing your book. Sure. And if you don't mind, some of it's in the book that I'd love the mystery to be more, uh, you know, revealed when someone, I, I think it's just a wonderful way to ex, ex, be, for me to express it, but for also for other people to experience the story. You had asked me earlier, and it's a really important question, that the writing must have been very therapeutic. And because the story is twofold, it's a story of the two-year search for my family. And I went to write that because people thought that was very pertinent. And I realized I can't just write that story. I have to write about everything you and I just talked about, the addiction, the abuse. I have to do that. And I didn't know how. The story alternates between those two stories. It starts with, just like I told you, that person, Roz, at New York City that talks to me about being a birth mother. And then I move upstate. And because I move upstate, which is where a lot of these things happen, I transfer the storyline over and it alternates between what happened after I was adopted and all the things we just talked about. And as those two mysteries, those two stories unfold, it becomes more and more obvious how they're interrelated and how they really connect and how I became who I am today. The two-year search was remarkable. And I only wanted one thing ever since I was little, just a picture, just a picture of my, my mother at around the time that I was born. I didn't even think I deserved it, but I thought if I could have that, I'd be happy the rest of my life. The two-year search was really uh, a matter of, again, having a community around me that was instrumental in the adoption triad, which is the adoptees, the birth mothers, and the adoptive families. There's a whole bunch of us that really were very closed in many ways. We're very protective of ourselves, but we're extraordinarily supportive and protective of each other. And the people that came into my life, other than just Roz, were birth mothers, search angels is what we call them. People that really helped me to understand that, Kevin, the search is great and the destination will come. One way or the other, you will find or not, you will discover or not. There'll be all those variations of what I'll find, what I won't find, how things will come. But the most important part about that whole journey was that it was a journey. That that whole process of searching, and you hit it earlier, it was a roadmap. It was a wonderful way for me to start to become who I always was, who I always had been, and understand the pieces of myself that I could now claim. So I didn't want to rush through it. I think there are wonderful stories of people who find in a week. It took me two years. There was some real wonderful, I would say, undercover detective work that I had to do. <laughs> well, it's true because in New York, my biological mother was from New Orleans. And there was a reason that people came to New York in 1962 to have children. It's because the laws are so strict here. And my records were sealed forever. And I will say, in all due fairness to our governor and our legislature, and this year, I'm just going to give a little kudos. I've never done this before on the air. They changed the law this year. And we can now get our original birth certificates. But we're talking, you know, uh, 15 years ago, I had no recourse. So the story talks about all the things I had to do and all the mysteries and all the phone calls I made and the places I went and the things I found. And it's really special. But the search was concluded. Um, and there were ups and downs to that. And I don't want to get anyone's hopes up or crash anyone on the, on the rocks of despair. Uh, there's ups and downs in every story. I think that if the if the movie Silver Linings Playbook had not been already put out there as a title, I'd call this book that. 
But there's a reason that is called Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. Uh, and you will find out when you read the book. And it's an awfully, it's an awfully special title for a very special reason. Well, we're going to link to everything of yours in the show notes, but tell everyone where they can find your book, where they can find you, and how they can learn from you. Sure. November 10th, the book dropped on Amazon. So it is now available on Amazon. And if you're a prime reader, of course, you can read it. But it's available for ebook and it's available as a soft cover. And I'm not telling anybody this yet, but I'll tell you right now, which is the audio book will be out on December 1 with the voice that you are listening to now. You may not see me, but you'll hear this voice. And it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful gift that people give when they when they when they read the book and when they embrace the book and they give me that kind of feedback. So if you do pick up the book, please leave a review. The other place you can find me is in on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. And if you type Dear Stephen Michael's Mother into Amazon or into YouTube, I'll come up or my name, Kevin Barheight, you'll find me. Those are some of the best places to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing so much of your story and all the wisdom that you gained from it. I know it's going to help so many people tremendously, and I so appreciate your time. I'm so grateful we had this time to go. So nice. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv slash free, including access to an eight-week sampler of our renowned journey mapping program. That gives you instant access to impactful training lessons, life-changing exercises, and our signature AccuSesh processes that you can implement immediately. We'd love your help in getting the message out and growing our community, so please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes. I'll catch you in the next episode.